GoMobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Welcome back to Gone Mobile. For this episode, we're joined by Jason Smith, who you may remember from a little over a year ago in episode 13. Thanks for coming back on the show again, Jason. No problem. Good to be back. Yeah, it's always good to chat. And, you know, we were talking, and, and rather than just do another normal show on Xamarin Forms like you might find on, well, episode 13 or other podcasts, we thought that this time around we, we'd have a little bit of fun and, and take a peek behind the curtain of the framework a bit and talk about fun things like the design decisions you made, where it came from, you know, bugs, triumphs, failures, all that fun stuff. That still sound good? That sounds great to me. All right. Well... Let's just uh, let's take it back to the beginning of where where the framework came, came from. Like, what made you guys decide to take the plunge of getting Xamarin into the the UI abstraction business? Well, I mean, like we talked about last time, we really wanted to look at kind of some of the ways we could uh, service some customers who were coming over and looking for a right once run anywhere solution. Uh, but as we looked at that space, we really realized that a lot of the solutions that existed out there were either very limiting or they were very difficult to use. Um, but they had a lot of the right ideas in place. And so we thought we could kind of take some ideas from you know different uh, people who'd already tried to do this and make something better. Um, yeah. Were there any frameworks in particular that you kind of looked to as good examples in this space? Because I mean, at least in my experience, a lot of them I would point to as as bad or having made a lot of mistakes. Where to be fair, it's it's a tough thing to get right. So I'd be curious to know like where you kind of drew inspiration from. I think one of the frameworks that made the best impact and and really had a very good approach was MVVM Cross. Now I I don't agree with every decision they ended up making, um, but they really took this idea of you really need that native experience. Um, they just didn't find a way to help unify more of that UI code. Um, but by abstracting out as much of that uh, middle layer as possible, uh, you were able to reuse a lot more code than you could otherwise. So how long did you guys spend actually doing research and digging into other frameworks before you know coming up with the design and, and what Xamarin Forms would actually look like? There was kind of a give and take on that. We we started off with a prototype that was actually designed as like a animation framework that I was working on on the side. Um, there's this project that I always go back and start, and I've now started it four times, and every time I've done it, it's ended up something else. <laughs> um, so this time it became Xamarin Forms. Um, but once we realized what we wanted to make, uh, there was a meeting with Miguel, myself, and a couple other engineers where we started really forming the idea of the product. And those frameworks uh, that we started looking at were, um, uh, I think, maybe two or three years old at that time. And uh, we only spent maybe two to three weeks initially digging into them. Uh, before we started coming out with a lot of the API. And some of the API was already formalized from the original project. And I remember in, in the original conversation we had, you mentioned that there was uh, at least some, if not inspiration, then just roots in general from uh, monotouch.dialog. It, it, was that, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, so monotouch.dialog was a project that had been done earlier that had really worked out how to do a nice convenient uh, UI table view in Xamarin iOS. 
And they wanted to bring that over to Xamarin Android so it could be shared between the two platforms. And an engineer by the name of James Clancy was working on that. And we brought in the implementation for that. And some of the API ended up kind of showing through, but we threw away pretty much the re- uh, most of the API. The only thing that really ended up living through that was cells, um, which made self be an interesting story and thing to talk about in a little bit. Sure. I mean, I'd be happy to, to just start digging into that if you want. Yeah. I mean, we've, we originally were looking at uh, this kind of idea of like, how do we do a list view? How do we do a table view? And, and how do we make those that are concepts that translate across all the different platforms? Um, and uh, the, the approach that had been taken previously seemed very reasonable at first, where you have essentially a collection of cells and some kind of delegate to create all of those cells and you have you know your basic ones you have your switch cell and your entry cell and tech cells and whatever else have you right um and we did that for a little while and before we hit 1.0 we ended up adding what we ended up calling a view cell Um, and view cell is essentially you can compose anything into it and in hindsight it's obvious that this would become the primary method through which people would use cells in at the time we were making it we didn't quite realize that i think some of the engineers kind of had an inkling but i certainly didn't realize it in time so is that more or less is that akin to the like the ui view element from dialogue then yeah it's it's the the best way to think of it is it's a it's a cell that you can compose together yourself right and um i think if we were to go back and do it again we probably wouldn't even use the cell idiom at all you just template directly to views. There's no reason for cells. And if we wanted to use those platform-specific cells that already are pre-built, uh, like you know the, the, the UI table view cells that are pre-built, um, simply provide views that have custom renderers pre-built that map directly to those. That would have been a better approach. So kind of to that point, I mean, so lists and tables and that sort of thing, you know, to- they're called different things depending on which platform you're on. They're they're one of the more probably I would think they're the easy one of the easier things to create that abstraction for. Only in that like the the display is pretty similar across different platforms. Like, what what would you point to as some examples of things that were really tough to to start providing these abstractions for as you built out forms? Oh, uh, as far as listen tables go, it was definitely grouping. Uh, grouping is not something that is uniform across platforms in any way. Um, some platforms don't even really support grouping. Um, you look at something like Windows Phone 8, which wasn't 8.1 at the time. And keep in mind that 8 and 8.1 are completely different toolkits under the hood. <laughs> um, it didn't really have good grouping support. And so we had to decide, okay, do we want to support grouped lists or not? Um, and, and that became a problem. And eventually we ended up doing it and we kind of implemented it by hand on those platforms that didn't really support it properly. Uh, the same thing ended up kind of being half true of Android. Um, and as we're moving forward now, we have much more modern toolkits to work with and build on top of. So like Android has shipped us Recycler View um, on Windows Phone 8.1 and 10. We now have uh, the more modern RT toolkit, which is much better than the old Silverlight toolkit. You mentioned Recycler View. Um, so is is everything under the hood now using that? Like I know there were some 
um, you know, I don't want to say issues, but there were some challenges early on with performance on scroll, you know, on list views on Android. And uh, I'm just curious if if that helps out at all on the platform. Fortunately, moving to Recycler View is still on our short-term to-do list. Uh, however, uh, it is being done. Uh, the thing with performance on list views on Android is the performance implications aren't so much due to uh, the way that the recycling ends up happening. It's due to the interactions between the Xamarin Forms layout system and the way cells get recycled. Um, and we've been working a lot on improving this. Uh, Xamarin Forms has, as you may know, it has a fairly complex layout system built into it. It, it effectively computes all of your layouts rather than proxying those down to native controls, which is itself an interesting decision to make. <laughs> um, and because we do it that way, uh, we also have what you might describe as a fairly naive layout system because all layout systems start slow. They're just very hard to make fast because there's so many different ways you can optimize them of you know, like, oh, this string changed, but size didn't really dramatically change. So do we have to bubble the change up all the way? Or you know, is that really going to affect the layout three layers up? Or you know, this kind of decision is actually really hard to make. Um, so we've been improving that, and as we've been improving that virtualization performance on Android and iOS, and actually all the platforms, has improved dramatically. It's still not as good as we want it to be, but it's good enough that most people are not, in my belief, encountering problems anymore. How are you going about measuring things like performance? You know, using as an example something like list views and recycling cells and stuff. Like, what are you what are you measuring for there, and how are you doing it? Well, I wish I could show you my actual physical desktop right now because it's full of devices, <laughs> and a lot of them are older devices. And we have a bunch of different test cases that we can run through and actually measure that performance on. Um, I would like to say that we had a beautiful automated solution for doing that. It just turns out that when we've tried doing that in the past, it hasn't quite worked out as reliable enough. Um, so you kind of have a human drive it because it's hard to tell if the numbers are reflective of a good experience. So it's kind of just that, you know, how does it actually feel when you're running and scrolling and stuff like that? It's two things. I would like we do measure how long does it take to recycle a cell in milliseconds? How long does it take to actually go like how many cells can you recycle per second? That kind of thing. Um, and, and measuring that performance gives you an average. But the problem is one of the big things we found was that the performance issues we were having were mostly around tiny objects being allocated, choking up the garbage collector and then needing to be garbage collected. And it was our fault for kind of allocating so many little objects. They ended up being things like event handlers, enumerators, um, things like that. Um, and just by going through and tweaking the code to reduce the number of tiny object allocations, we were able to get three, 400% performance boosts just because the GC wasn't kicking in nearly as often. Interesting. And kind of jumping back to the, the layout system before, you said that you made some interesting decisions around how to do that and um, I'd be curious to kind of dive into that a little bit because as you said there there are a lot of built-in layouts that come with forms and they yeah. definitely lay things out in ways that the platforms generally don't make easy to do yeah so we we had to make this decision and 
I, I guess I would like to say that we consciously made this decision. Um, but the reality is I made this decision very early on. And to me, it just seemed like the right way to go. And I still stand by it, um, though we probably could have afforded some more discussion on it. And the decision is basically between the two things. You can either have all of the layout be performed in Xamarin Forms, and then it basically tells the native toolkit, just put this thing here, that thing there, and kind of absolutely position everything. Or you can build a, for example, if you want to do a stack layout, right? You have stack panel on WPF. You can use all sorts of different, uh, you, you could map it down to some kind of constraint system on iOS. And you could try to map it down to like the native layouts in each system and then allow those native layouts to handle the actual measurement and sizing code. Um, and that has some strengths. The strengths of that are you don't end up in a situation where you have this brand new layout system that needs time to optimize, right? And needs time to have all those little edge cases kind of worked out, which thank God most of the edge cases are worked out at this point. <laughs> um, but you lose pixel perfect precision on where you want to put things um, one layout system may opt to wrap something and the other one may not and you just don't have control over what they do um, they may opt to add some additional padding in certain cases and you may not be able to prevent that um, so it's it's a case of you know give and take do you give the user the control and take the performance hit that hopefully then in the future you'll kind of completely reclaim? Or do you give them the very high performance solution, which is going to have kind of like, they don't have perfect control over where everything ends up on screen. So then just to make sure that, that I'm kind of comprehending correctly, can I assume then that something like a, a relative layout, like under the hood, it's, it's more or less like an absolute layout. It's just that there's a translation happening in the forms layer to, to treat it as such. Yeah, the biggest way to think of it is every layout on the native end, it's literally just, um, I, I guess the best way to put it is it's, it's an absolute layout. Now, on iOS, this is just like you add a UI view to a UI view and you absolutely position it. Right. On Windows Phone, it's essentially a canvas. And on Android, we have our own view group sub subclass, um, view group being the base layout class. Um and as far as the native toolkits are concerned, everything's just absolutely positioned, like you just said. And then above it, Xamarin.Forms is calculating what those absolute positions are. And then I'm assuming that things like list views still translate down to you know normal table views and list views and that sort of thing, rather than you guys re-implementing that? Oh yeah, totally. It's only things that actually derive from the Xamarin.Forms.Layout class that do this. Um, list views, a view derivation. Is there anything that you kind of regret about that decision, or has that mostly worked out? Um, I regret that I have to maintain a layout system. <laughs> uh, it's a very difficult piece of code to keep running. Uh, there are all sorts of edge cases you have to cover, and there are... I don't think we made the wrong call. I think we made the far harder call. It would have been much easier to kind of cover the edge cases as best as possible around uh, the differences that each of the layouts on the different platforms will have and just kind of hope that they lay out the way you want. Um, but that would have presented two major problems. 
Uh, and these are actually the things that I think make it the right call. The first is that, like I said, the user isn't going to have that pixel-perfect control. But the second is the more important one to me, which is that in Xamarin Forms, you can subclass layout and completely modify how it lays out. And you don't have to write any platform-specific code to do that. However, if the layout system was implemented on the platform, you'd have to re-implement that layout three times to create a custom layout. You'd have to do it once for each of your targets. Uh, so it's not necessarily three, but it's probably at least two. Um, and this would be a, a pretty big burden for anybody who wants to do a custom layout. Well, at that point, you're defeating a lot of the purpose of the abstraction, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's the primary reason I think it's the right call. And how do you, how are you maintaining those, the, those lists of edge cases that you have? Do you basically have these, these, uh, like a suite of test apps that you kind of run through and, and visualize and, and that kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, so QA has been, it just in general, has been a, an ever-evolving process. <laughs> uh, we thought we had a really great QA setup when we launched, and we learned we didn't. Um, but the idea uh, behind testing the layouts was pretty simple. Since all the code lives in the PCL world, we could essentially write a fake backend or a fake device for Xamarin Forms uh, that has all the different objects, but they can be measured, and they give back realistic results about how big they want to be, how big they can be, and, and all these answers. And then we can write unit tests around the layout system itself. Um, so when we get bugs in the layout system and these corner cases coming in, nine times out of ten we can write a unit test for it and just cover it that way. And then it never regresses. Um, that that last little bit of, of thing that we can't cover is usually because like um, on Windows Phone, for example, labels sometimes measure out to non-integer sizes. Um, because the screen is kind of weirdly sized and dimensioned between the virtual pixels and the real pixels. Um, and sometimes you get odd edge cases around that that are a bit hard to reproduce in, um, in a unit test. And for that, we use UI test, which has been increasingly more helpful for us. Um, right. More and more of our reproductions end up in UI test lately just because they're getting more and more complicated. And I would assume you guys get priority access to test cloud and all that. So hopefully you're using that as well. You'd be surprised. <laughs> um, what happens is we were using test cloud just as heavily as we could and just smashing the system. But the problem was we were running it on every commit for a test suite that was mm. growing to be one of the largest test suites that UI test has simply because we'd been using it longer than anybody around. Um, and uh, we were kind of starting to add a delay for actual users. Um, so what they ended up doing was they built a queue for us specifically that is basically the lowest priority queue. So when we submit a test, it only runs when nobody else wants to use those devices. Um, <laughs> makes our test take a little while. Yeah, that makes sense, though. It does. And, and before we, we leave the layout thing for, for just a second, like knowing that this all kind of boils down to, to unit testable absolute layout code, I, I wouldn't be doing my job as the interview, interviewer here if I didn't ask if, if that meant that a, a designer is in the works. Well, uh, there are a couple things you might be interested in. Uh, first, <laughs> you, have you seen the Visual Studio extension that will live preview XAML for you? Actually, I have not. There is a Visual Studio extension written by Daniel Cusolino and his team. 
um, that will live preview XAML as you type. Um, obviously, a full-on designer would be a fantastic idea. <laughs> um, and that's all I can say about it. That's the political response I, I expected, but I had to ask. <laughs> Understandable. So, so let's kind of move on from layout into to animation. I mean, animation is something where uh, I actually use it all the time as as an example of one of the things I really like about forms because I mean, on iOS animation, the, the animation APIs are very very nice, and on other platforms, they're not so much. Like yeah. it was it was animation. I and I think that was the project you said that you'd kind of started and stopped about four t- times or whatever. Like, yep. how hard is that to get right on these other platforms? It's really well. Actually, it's a bit of a surprising answer. It's really easy to get basic animations running. It's really hard to get basic animations running fast. Hmm. Um, most mobile toolkits kind of have hacks in place to make their animations fluid and smooth. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried this, but on iOS, if you write an animation and then you pause the debugger, the animation will continue running until it finishes. Right. (laughs) And that's a really interesting behavior because your entire app's code is completely paused. So how is the animation completing? And the answer is it's actually being handled by an external process, which has kind of a render thread that takes care of the, the whole animation for you. Um, which also means that if you happen to like you know do something silly like update your from your database at the same time, you will uh, still have a smooth and fluid animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as far as we went, uh, the question was how do we make our animation system have those same strengths? Um, and we did as best we could. Now, fortunately, iOS is the only one that really has this strong animation system. Which even if you stop the world, it keeps going um but they also have kind of a limited animation system in a way like to get that advantage you have to use you have to work your animation within certain constraints certain easings certain kind of different ways of making the animation work and uh we actually supported more than they did in terms of options and properties and different things you could do um so when we can map it down to something that their system can handle we try to do that and then you'll get that render thread advantage. Um, and when we can't, we don't. And that's a, a product, again, of the that kind of layout system that you had built, I take it? It's, it's actually uh, more a product of the fact that we're just simply animating properties. Uh, all of our animations are just based on, like, animate a property change, right? And so for us to map it down to something iOS understands, we have to look at the animation request you've made as a whole and attempt to do that translation instead of run your animation code. Um, so it only works in somewhat limited scenarios for that. If you're using a Lambda expression, basically we can't do anything about it because we don't know what you're doing in there. And is animation something that you're able to to write um, unit tests, as you called them before, around that as well? Or is this something where it really takes someone kind of observing the animation in action to to know what's going on? We can unit test the animation system, the thing that actually provides the easings and the tweening and, and actually runs the animations and updates all the properties. What we can't easily unit test is actually seeing that those property changes then ref- get reflected into the user interface. Um, because at that point, you're essentially looking at the output and validating that that output looks correct. 
Um, and this is an area where I think mobile testing really, well, actually just testing in general, really needs some, some love. Uh, it's very difficult to say, like, I want to write a test that validates that when I press this button, the screen turns blue. You can validate that when you press a button, the property that's supposed to represent the screen's background color is blue. And you might be able to even write a unit test that like captures an image and validates that the average color is blue. Um, but like once you get more complex than like turn the screen blue, it becomes much more difficult. And you know, screenshot comparisons are not a great thing to do with cross-platform. So yeah, if you have any ideas, let me know. <laughs> I was hoping you had some. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know right now. It's not something I've been working on. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Raygun. Raygun is an essential tool for every developer, helping you detect and diagnose your errors in real time so your team can fix bugs faster. Just a few lines of code is all it takes to get started, and you'll be amazed how quickly you start receiving reports from all of your apps. Why wait for frustrated users to notify you when they hit a bug, and then spend your time digging through log files? Raygun notifies you immediately and with all the information you need. Raygun keeps everyone informed, so whether you have 1 or 100 developers, you'll get everything you need to become an awesome development team. Start your free trial today at raygun.io, and make sure to thank them for sponsoring Gone Mobile. So, I mean, we've been talking about a lot of the, the good stuff, so, so I do want to hit you up for, for some of the, the not-so-good stuff, too. So, I mean... Are there any like what are some of the biggest like bugs that made it into forms and and out to to developers? Like, are there any that kind of stand out to you more than others? Yeah, we've definitely made some decent sized mistakes at times. <laughs> um, we had a oftentimes the bugs go out. They go out because we have a hole in our test suite um, because we don't do a release without it passing the test suite and the QA suite. Um, and so for that to happen, uh, we, yeah, there's a failure. And the most recent one I can remember that really sucked was we put out a release for, I don't know, maybe it was 1.4.2 or 1.4.3, and it contained this regression on Windows Phone that caused the text to not appear in your password entry field. Uh, it would just be blank no matter how much you typed now your properties would show that it was there which was why testing wasn't showing us that this failing it was a purely visual issue hmm. um and unfortunately it just didn't end up getting caught during the 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 qa phase um and it's one of the reasons why i said we really need a solution that like lets us look at visual output and validate it a little more cleanly at least going back to that, like it, it might not be a, a perfect or an automated solution, but have you have you guys looked at or considered things like acceptance testing frameworks where, you know, you don't necessarily have to rely on pixel perfect comparisons, but you can at least look at, you know, sets of screenshots side by side from, you know, last version to this version and, and try and, you know, at least have a person check off a box or say this one looks good. And it's pretty, e it's pretty quick to kind of look at big sets of images and at least look for, for glaring things. Yeah, and in fact, we use UI test for that. Uh, so UI test, we can actually tell it, hey, give us a screenshot at this point in the app's run, um, which is why this problem didn't show up on iOS or Android. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, UI test doesn't have a Windows Phone aspect to it, and 
it means that most of our UI testing on Windows Phone is done by hand. And as you know, by hand testing is a great way to miss a <laughs> bug. Clearly. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So that just means you guys need to put out UI tests for Windows Phone, right? Well, I'll, I'll certainly pass it up to the team. <laughs> it would make my life easier, yeah. Are there, are there any others that you kind of stand out to you? Uh, we've been pretty good on regressions. We've had some issues. Uh, there was a change we made recently which caused uh, some people to be upset. Um, there is a thing that people do with UI or with list views, which is they try to implement their own template selectors. Uh, and if you don't know what a template selector is, the biggest way to the easiest way to think of this is list views work on you give it a, a item source or, or some kind of data to bind to, and you give it a template, which kind of is what you project that data into. It's it's a view that gets realized, and then the data gets set on it. Um, and a template selector is basically saying, okay, I want to pick a different view to project into based on on what the data is. Um, so people have been hacking this into forms because we don't have official support for it. And, you know, a lot of people like this idea. They use it a lot, especially XWPF and XSilverlight developers. It's very key to them. Um, unfortunately, the way they were doing it, they were overriding a method and then they would check the incoming data. Uh, and previously, that data was always valid. And recently, to do a memory leak fix, we had to start passing null when we were cleaning these things up which would cause all the event handlers to unhook and let us <laughs> clean up a lot of memory. Um, well, none of these people were checking for null. And so it broke a whole bunch of apps, even though you know we never explicitly said this will never be null. Um, it just happened to work before, and then that behavioral change broke some people's apps. And I, I'm not sure exactly where I fall on like whether or not that was the right move. Um, I think it needed to happen to get that memory fixed, though. So you talked about a couple bigger bugs and forms that you've run into. Are there any other you know, general, I guess, complaints or, or really popular requests that you've had from users? I mean, the biggest complaint we still get is they want faster and faster list views. <laughs> um, you'll get, and, and that has, that started with, like, the layout system was really bad. And nowadays, it's usually because people are using a lot of XAML with a lot of styles and just the more complex features of the toolkit and not realizing that you have to pay for those features. Um, when you hard code all those values, it's much, much faster than if you try to have that filter through a system. And so we're trying to come up with ways to make that faster. One of the big ones is we recently put out a beta XAML compiler which actually takes XAML and compiles it down to IL, uh, which removes the entire XML parsing aspect of XAML. It makes it as fast as non-XAML code, or, well, as good as we can make the compile aspect of it be. <laughs> and uh, that did not work. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, about, what about that didn't work? <laughs> Most people's projects wouldn't build, some wouldn't load, uh, there was just a whole host of issues around the actual integration of the XAML compiler and Visual Studio. And they wanted to lock a lot of the same files, and then your build, your, your MS build task would end up deadlocking, or Visual hmm. Studio would complain about errors, and you just wouldn't be able to build. Um, we've got some to most of that all worked out. 
I, I think if I asked Stefan, he'd say it's all worked out, but I, I'm a very skeptical person. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see that thing coming back soon uh, because it should make a big difference for a lot of people. And then that would also mean that you would find out at compile time about, you know, binding typos and things like that? You would find out about anything that is not an extension typo. Uh, extensions are still going to have to be interpreted at runtime because they can be defined by the user and they're defined in the DLLs and that can change from one version of forms to the next. So you mentioned, um, you know, users not really knowing that they have to sort of pay for more expensive operations and everything. Is there any documentation or anything out there about like best practices for Xamarin Forms, you know, specifically with list views even? Actually, there is a document specifically about list view performance. And it kind of goes through like the three main ways to improve the performance of your list view. Um, it's available on docs.xamarin.com, and if you ask me where on there, I have no idea. All I know <laughs> is I helped kind of write some of that for the docs team. That's right. That's what we have show notes for. Exactly. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure we can find a link to it. Um, but yeah, there, there are you know some things you can do, and they kind of go like from like the basic things of like, hey, make sure your layouts aren't nested too deeply. Make sure that you don't you know use too many bindings. Uh, just these kind of things that like people may not realize are actually a little bit expensive because you have to be able to virtualize a cell in about two milliseconds to be able to scroll pretty fast. And so if that takes more than two milliseconds, you're not going to be in a happy place. Is there an easy way for users to measure that themselves? Like how fast uh, you can render cells? Um, the only way I know of to do that uh, from a user perspective is to set up a timer that f that kind of like reports how long it takes between each constructor call of the cell um, and kind of average that out as you're scrolling as fast as you can and that will kind of tell you about how fast you're virtualizing cells. Um, and I uh, mean, you, you mentioned there like the, how expensive binding is and these layouts and XAML and, and all that kind of stuff, but but in a large way, like that, that's a lot of the promise of going with something like forms, right? Like they, that's a, a major part of the sales pitch. Like yep. is, have you found that to be one of the more common problems that people have is when they start, maybe someone's coming from WPF where they're used to, you know, having all the, a beefy Windows machine behind the app and then they're going, they're using XAML again, they're using data binding, maybe they're even using some of the same MVVM frameworks behind the scenes. Um, but now they're they're in this more constrained system. Do you do you find people running into issues because of that a lot? Uh, yes and no. I mean, first I, I need to start so I don't get killed by Eric. Uh, the binding system itself is actually pretty fast. <laughs> it, it, it's it's about as fast as you could reasonably expect it to be. The problem is that it's still going to be slower than just a like property lookup. And a property set is still going to be slower than that because you have event propagation and all these things that have to happen to make a binding system really useful. Um, so I, I do want to make sure I mention that it's actually pretty fast overall. But you're right that there are certain aspects of this that are fairly expensive and those developers do want to use those and they use them quite heavily. Uh, what we have seen in the past is that you'll have a developer who comes from a desktop scenario and they're quite used to having a desktop processor. 
And those processors can chug through things way faster than mobile processors can. And they'll use, you know, uh, cells that are defined in XAML, that have styles that are defined in XAML, that have views in them that are defined in different XAML pages. And, you know, you, you go on and you realize that they have 400 lines of XAML for each cell that has to be parsed into a into a tree and then inflated and hydrated and all the different things we have to do XAML and that ends up being too slow. Um, and when you just when you just remove that XAML aspect, you gain a lot of that performance. And the fact that you right now I have to tell you that if you really need that performance, you shouldn't use XAML in cells is the reason we're building the XAML compiler. Because mm. I want to tell you, go ahead and use XAML it won't have any performance implications because it just compiles to IL. It would be a lot better. I'd, I'd also love to, to dig into some of the, the other design decisions that, that were made when, when creating Xamarin Forms in the first place. And I mean, you mentioned the, you know, drawing in, inspiration from other frameworks that are out there like MVVM Cross and, you know, Xamarin Forms ships with a lot of the, the normal things you'd find in an MVVM framework like dependency service and like messaging center and, and that sort of thing. Um, like, how did the how did you approach designing how forms would expose those things? Uh, so most of the time when we're designing something, we ask ourselves, what is the simplest thing we can provide to the user that meets most of their or all of their needs? Um, so when you look at something like uh, the dependency service or the messaging center, the idea there is not that we're going to provide the most complete most fully functional dependency injection IOC container setup. We're just going to provide something that will get you off the ground and running. And for a lot of apps, for we've seen many large apps that never moved beyond those needs. And if we can cover 80% of those apps without with this very basic service, that's great. Because there are fantastic alternatives out there for something like dependency service. There's tiny IOC, which is fantastic. Um, both the MVVM uh, frameworks, MVVM Lite and MVVM Cross, uh, being the two major ones, uh, provide an IOC container setup. Um, as far as the messaging center goes, um, I've never seen MVVM work without some kind of message passing. I, I think it's actually the Achilles heel of the pattern. Um, <laughs> message passing is kind of a, I don't know, it leaves a foul taste in my mouth. I dislike it. Um, however, for things like navigation and and certain kinds of event propagation, you just need it. And so we provided a very basic one. It was also sure. an area where we recently found a pretty nasty bug. Well, now you have to tell. All right. So <laughs> I, I was writing this messaging center, and this was kind of pretty early on, and I thought I was clever. <laughs> and we thought, well... That's where every programming story goes wrong. Exactly. The problem was I thought I was clever. Uh, we thought to ourselves, well, let's make sure that the messaging center keeps a weak reference to the subscriber so it doesn't end up keeping the subscriber alive. That way you don't need to unsubscribe. You can just make sure you handle the case where you're, you're dead or dying, right, um, mm -hmm. in your callback. And that's a much nicer API. Um, so it does that. It, when you make a call to subscribe in the messaging center, you pass yourself and it stores that as a weak reference and you pass the callback. And therein was the problem. See, when I use the messaging center in my head, I kind of tend to just pass like static methods to it as the callback because that tends to be the pattern I'm, I'm using. Um, unfortunately, 
most people, it turned out, pass instance methods. Well, instance methods implicitly capture this. So the weak reference thing ends up not working. However, the uh, documentation clearly states it does. So, oh, Well, then it's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's getting fixed. Uh, we can't fix it for cases where you capture this inside of a closure, like a lambda, but we can fix it for when you pass an instance method. We can actually kind of dig in there, grab the method info, and store that instead of the entire delegate. And as far as that API goes, one of the things I was I was just curious myself about was um, one of the things that, that I always found kind of weird based on using other, uh, you know, messaging pub sub type systems is in the case of the Xamarin Forms one, when you're subscribing, you seem you need to know the, the type of the, the sender just to subscribe to the message. And I, I'm curious if there was a particular reason for going with that kind of API. Um, well, I mean, it. I, I hate to say this, but it really comes down to my Linux background. There was this thing called Dbus. Um, and Dbus is, in my opinion, one of the neatest IPC mechanisms that exists. And the, the way that it kind of has, uh, you essentially publish objects onto a graph. and That's all not important, but the keys to what you're subscribing to and what you're sending, all the same information, the arguments, the sender, all that, is part of the signature and when i was looking at designing this thing i thought i like dbus i think they've done a good thing i'll do the same thing except i'm going to do it in process instead of an ipc mechanism and um, if you don't like it you can always just use object object and just you know always send your subscriber as an object type rather than a defined type and always send your sender as an object type and that seemed like, to me, a very obvious thing to be able to do. And I don't know that the fact that you could specify object as the type argument has been obvious to our users. Um, in fact, from the way you guys are both shaking your head, I'm pretty sure yeah, the answer is no. I know one of the first things I did when I started using it was like make my own you know, extension methods to just you know, turf the type and, and do what I wanted to. Yeah. Um, it was a... There was a point in the history of the project where we started doing much more formal API design. Um, and the messaging center and dependency service both predate that point. And I think they would have come out differently uh, if we had, had been doing the formal API review at that point. And is there anything in particular that you're, you're thinking of that, that you would design differently there? Um, as far as the messaging center goes, there would definitely be methods that don't require generic parameters. Um, and that would be a little more, I don't want to use the phrase duct typed, but that would feel more duct typed. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that would have provided a, not a cleaner user experience, but a more obvious user experience. What about on the dependency service side? I wouldn't have called it dependency service. <laughs> I think it's a terrible name. Um, I, well, I it's think nice and generic. It is nice and generic. Uh, I think both the messaging center and the dependency service have terrible names. Messaging center should have been named messaging. Um, and I don't know what dependency service should have been named. 
I haven't thought about that much, but I know I dislike it. <laughs> well, that's the first step. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. We're already married to it, so I can't really do much about it right now. Yeah, another another thing I was just genuinely curious of is it, I mean, obviously you borrowed a lot of concepts from MVVM frameworks, um, yes. but it seems like you kind of stopped a little bit short of kind of going whole hog into, you know, having, say, base view model types or having a built-in, you know, say, view model navigation system where Forms pushes all these things up into the, uh, the page level. Um, I'm assuming that was a, a pretty deliberate decision, so I'd be curious to hear uh, more in, on why there. Yeah, there are actually two reasons for that. The first is that we thought there are already large existing MVVM communities in the mobile space. The MVVM light guys, the MVVM cross guys. We really wanted them to look at this and go, we can make this work with our stuff. Um, so we, we have a base view model. Let's make sure that that's compatible with Xamarin Forms and, and move from there. Um, and by not providing that in our framework, uh, there was some hope that you know we would offload that into the community. The next major feature release, which I can't tell you when it is, uh, and I can't even promise it's going to be one six zero. It might be one seven zero, depending on when our next API bump ends up happening. Um, but whatever the next release that actually comes with real features will come with more and more things being opened up, and we're doing this in a couple different ways. Um, I can tell you one of the biggest, nastiest classes in Xamarin Forms is the Android Platform class, which is internal to the framework. It's, I don't want to use the phrase God class because it's only like 2,000 lines of code long, but it's also probably the biggest class in that entire platform. Um, and it does a lot of things. And one of the things we're working on right now is pulling that out and placing it into renderers that people have access to. Um, the other thing that, that people often trip over is there are these internal methods. Uh, not just internal classes, but internal methods on things like... Uh, a great example is Button used, has an, or used to have an internal send clicked method, which essentially would cause it to you know, fire the clicked event. So if you were writing a button renderer from scratch and you didn't have access to this method, you were kind of hosed. Uh, what we've started doing is we've created these interfaces, which are, in the case of a button, uh, iButton controller, and they're explicitly implemented on the, the view, and they allow you to actually get access to those internal controlling mechanisms that as an application author, you probably don't need, but as, a, as maybe a component vendor or somebody writing a lot of renderers, you might need access to those methods. Um, and, and they do things that you probably wouldn't want to trigger otherwise. Cool. So then that also kind of begs the question of uh, what, is the, what is the release schedule or cadence like for forms? Like how often are you guys releasing and, and, and how do you as a team kind of approach what makes it in or, or what gets planned for a release? So the, the release schedule is and, and I'm going to say this, but it's not strictly true. <laughs> it's, it's a weekly release. But the way it ends up working is we put out a release every week internally. Um, or as best we can. Sometimes we're a bit busy. Um, and that is basically rolled directly from master. And that enters the QA pipe. And as 
QA passes or, or fails that release, it will then begin to be promoted to different stages of the public consumption area. So if it goes through all unit testing, all UI testing, and passes some samples verification where we update the samples and check it against them, um, it will then be promoted to the pre-release channel. Um, so like you can look and see 1.5.0 pre-release 1 is out currently. If it were to stay in that pre-release channel for a whole week, because it will always go out on a Monday. If it stays in there till the following Monday and doesn't have any additional regressions reported, we will then promote that to the stable channel. Um, that has not happened with 150 pre-1. <laughs> uh, and we are working on getting pre-2 out the door, but what ends up delaying it is all those regressions have to be fixed before it goes out the door. Um, and then you'll see that one go through the exact same cycle. It'll, get, it'll go through internal QA, out to pre-release, out to stable. And hopefully that one will promote all the way to stable. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and even outside of just feature releases, um, like how do you, what's the decision process like around, you know, what what platforms get supported? Uh, so like, like, for example, like if you need to support the, the Windows Universal story or something like that? Like, how do you guys approach that? We look at it from a couple different angles. One, is it technically feasible? Uh, there are some platforms that's just, we can't target. Uh, a great example of one that would be really difficult to target would be BlackBerry. We just don't have anything there. Um, also, like, there's no user base, so, you know, it would be a bit, <laughs> bit of a engineering hassle to get that done. I think it really has to do with, like, can we service our users better by supporting this platform? Windows 10 obviously needs to happen, is happening. We've been working on it. We did a private preview uh, where people could sign up. And uh, we're now fixing a lot of the remaining issues in the UWP platform of Xamarin Forms so that we can release that for a more public beta and, and kind of get more apps running on it. Uh, it's actually a really nice platform because it will also mean that Xamarin Forms makes the transition to the desktop. And what uh like what is that meant for for the the internal code for Forms then? Like how have you been able to like how much code is reusable from what you've been doing for the mobile platforms on desktop, and how much have you had to customize, especially for? Um, and I guess that also lends itself to say supporting tablet layouts versus phone size layouts like how, how do you approach handling all of that in in one package well i can't speak in specific about how we're going to approach variable size layouting other than to say that it's an obvious problem that we have a plan for <laughs> um I, well I, stated yes it, it's something that needs to be addressed there are a couple obvious solutions on the market already i think we have a pretty good idea of what we're going to do um and it should service most needs um, as far as how has it affected the code in core, in the, the cross-platform code of Xamarin Forms, very little actually had to be changed to make the desktop transition work. Uh, in fact, the, the Windows 10 code base is something like 90% identical to the Windows 8.1 code base. Um, they just, you know, Microsoft did a pretty good job of unifying those toolkits and really making UWP kind of the, the universal Windows platform. It's the promise of Windows 8, just now it's 10. And, you know, I know we, we've kind of gone back and forth on on a few different 
design decisions and things that are good or bad. Um, I'd be curious just as we, we kind of start wrapping up here and don't take up your, your entire night making you go down memory lane with forms. Yeah. I mean, if you were, is there anything that really stands out that if you were, you're starting over, you were building this thing from scratch all over again, like there, there's one, is there one thing in particular that you would point to as, okay, that's the thing that we would, we would definitely do differently? Oh yeah. The way we virtualize cells, uh, what we do today, um, when we were doing it, it seemed like the right way to do it. And it actually has some distinct advantages. So the, it, it might be that when I redo the, when I tell you the other way to do this and we, if we were to actually do it, we'd find out it's wrong, but let's go with it. The idea was basically this, when we reuse cells, we reuse the renderer. So we realize the cell. And then we go to each of the renderers and we update the element that they're tracking. Um, this is very similar to the way that virtualization ends up working on iOS or Android. Um, and so it was very natural for us as you know mobile developers to kind of do it this way. Um, it comes with some degree of performance cost because it's, it's a pretty heavy-handed way to go about doing it in terms of the actual, like, platform code that has to exist and and the oddities you have to deal with um, if I were going to redo it what I would do is is instead of virtualizing the renderers I would simply update the binding context on the cell and say all the data in your cell has to come from the binding context no if ands or buts hmm. there's just nowhere else you get it from it's all a virtualized thing anyway so that's what you should be doing and we'll be prescriptive about it. And by doing it that way, the binding context will automatically update the properties, the properties then will automatically update their uh, renderers properties, which will then just kind of allow the whole system to propagate through very smoothly. Um, this may or may not be something we're prototyping right now. <laughs> then you may or may not have heard it here first. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I would definitely, definitely do that differently if we had a chance. So you've dropped little uh, pieces of information, little interesting bits here and there about what's next for Xamarin Forms. Um, just to wrap up, is there anything else that you haven't mentioned that you could tell us about what's you know in line in the near future for Xamarin Forms users? That's actually a really hard question because I know the entire roadmap, and it's very hard for me to call <laughs> out the things that I know are public or not. Sorry, you could trust us and all of our listeners. It's cool. Exactly. All right, let me just post that up somewhere. Like, <laughs> just. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I nothing's immediately coming to mind. Um, there are obviously some neat things coming to support Windows 10. Um, one of the most obvious ones that we've made fairly clear is Android material support is going to come in full, not just you know having cards and the theme applied, but really... You know, the biggest change being getting the correct tabs and having the drawer layout kind of consume the entire height of the device, which is something that users have wanted for a long time. And unfortunately, due to different circumstances, it hasn't happened yet. Um, and it will be coming now. It's I'm actually, that's what I'm coding right before we hopped on this call. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, that's happening. And we've also said we're looking into doing something like a grid view, which will match kind of the standard kind of view layout you see in UWP. Um, the, not to confuse that with the grid, which is kind of our grid layout, um, 
that's not a name of an actual class grid view. It's just kind of what I'm calling it in parlance right now. This is this is an awesome awesome look behind the scenes at forums. Uh, hopefully, everyone finds it interesting and at the very least now understands a little bit more about kind of some decisions here and uh, where it came from. But thanks so much for for taking the time to chat through all this. Yeah, thank you for having me. Anytime. And I'm sure there's there's more there's more than enough for a few episodes in the future, so we might have to coerce you back on. Ah, all right, just give me a ping on Twitter. Will do. All right, and uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time on Gone Mobile. Mm-hmm.